What up, what up? How's, uh, how's Istanbul so far? Oh, it's cool. The thing is, it went from, like, being cold enough to need a sweater to, like, you know, swamp-ass hot in about a couple days. Oh, it's just like a magical point in the middle of May where yeah. you go from sweaters to swamp ass. <laughs> that sounds like a, it sounds like very East coast. Cause I know New York gets yeah. like that quite a bit. By the way, for our non us, non East coast listeners, swamp ass is when you sweat, <laughs> like when your back gets sweaty and it yeah. drips down to your butt and it goes between the crack and it just makes it wet and gross. That's swamp ass. Yeah. Yeah. Or if, if, if you're a little overweight, it's swamp uh, muffin top. Swamp muffin? Because it doesn't reach your crack. It just like rests on your back pretty much. Really? I think that's a thing, right? I'm going to Google it after this. <laughs> Wait, do you have like a, a bump of fat over your ass? No, isn't that like, what a muffin I don't know top fat is? anatomy. I mean, I, I no. don't, but... Muffin top refers to like the sides and the front. I've never seen a rear muffin top unless you're truly obese. I think I've My seen 600 like, pound life obese. <laughs> that is a show I watch to not get to that point. So, so I probably have seen it on that. Gross. But, but swamp muffin tops aside, um, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've been all right. I mean, I've, I've just been honestly wrapping up some shit that's been taking endless, endless amounts of time on, on our engineering side, like, you know, yeah. moving around servers, configurations, all that type of stuff. But What's honestly been keeping me going through all of it um, is just the fact that Boston sports is finally picking up now. We got like a, a Bruins game seven in a couple of hours, a Celtics game seven happening yeah. to, in a couple of days. And then Red Sox won yesterday and they're, you know, Trevor story is finally pulling through and he's, uh, he's doing well. So I, I, I like it. I like when sports teams that I root for do well. Honestly, having left the States, well, like 2016, six years now, Having yeah. left the States in 2016 absolutely destroyed my ability to follow American sports. Mainly because, because like time. you know, well, time difference and well, I'm not watching a recorded game. It's not happening. Fuck that. Oh, interesting. I, I, I need to watch live games. And the thing is, like, here it's like on a work day and it's three in the morning and you're alone. You know, it's just it kills the mood. It's true. supposed to be a Sunday afternoon, the bucket of chicken wings. <laughs> kind of true. I feel that. I mean, I think the you, you can have like watch parties. I do remember like when we were really, really young, like me and you and a couple of your friends did that. We stayed up to like 2 a.m., ordered Burger King and just watched the game in, in the basement. Uh, that, oh, was, yeah. that was that was the uh, final four. Oh, was that a college football game? No, that was college basketball, final four, March Madness. Oh, I thought it was a football game. Um yeah, no, but... revoke your passport. <laughs> Just renounce my citizenship. Um, actually, I can't refo- afford to renounce my citizenship. So it's like, even if I wanted to, um, I don't. That's I love true. it. Uh, to, to the NSA I'm shopping agent listening, for like Barbados, Barbados passports <laughs> on the deep web. Oh God, that you can pay for with uh, Luna, which we'll talk about soon. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, speaking about you know, the shit that's been on most of our timelines, you know, shit, I guess, is officially kind of hitting the fan. Um, You know, it seems like we should, we should really illustrate how bad it hit the fan before we get into your talking points. Right. uh, Do you still have the calculator pulled up on your screen? Oh, let me pull it up. I'm excited. Read the number. Okay. So 
how many coins did you have again? So don't don't mention the number of coins, okay? But okay. just at, at seventy-seven dollars a coin, what was that position worth about a, a month ago? So a month ago, your position would be worth three hundred and forty-six point five million. Million what? Dollars. <laughs> That's that just hurts to say out loud. Oh, honestly, should hit the fan. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. the, the, the position the position in my crypto wallet on my phone right now, one month ago, would have been worth $350 million. <laughs> that just the, the more you say it, the more I just like my stomach kind of sinks. Yeah, but to be fair, like I didn't have the money to buy a $350 million position a month ago. So true. <laughs> so imagine all the tuna cans you can buy for the cats in Turkey, right? Exactly. I mean, I'm feeding them anyways, but yeah. I mean, honestly, with that type of money, you can like ship fresh tuna from Japan. Just feed it to them. I can <laughs> ship fresh cats to feed. You just exactly. bring a whole bunch. Pretty much. But yeah, um, yeah we yeah, we so love cats. The market. Yeah. yeah, but so so basically, I mean, I, I believe most people can can see the fact that winter is no longer coming, but is here. Oh yeah. I mean, it honestly seems like the only thing that's up right now is like what McDonald's job applications, you know, the, the, what's, what's funny is that like, we've been covering this topic for some time now, you know, we discussed what a winter would look like, how to prepare for it. Uh, in one of our like earlier episodes, even talking about the fall of like the checkout giants recently, like fast and bolt, um, mm-hmm. discussing what may be happening with VC that's a contributing factor to all this chaos, referring all to our the NASDAQ given. being down between 50 and 90%. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, the tech crashing, we, like it, we had this kind of common theme in previous episodes. And even with it, with our talk with Aiden Gold last week, where that's just something that we consistently talked about. And now that it's here, it's just funny because a lot of the stuff that we mentioned, the small snippets of information are actually playing out. And by the way, we should know. say that we are in, by no means calling the bottom of the market right now. No, no, yeah, like we are, we are also doom, doom scrolling and just talking shit about whatever pops up in our timeline. But we, yeah. we, we didn't think the music would never stop. Basically, me and Mo have this have this pastime of uh, basically when anything's hitting the fan, when once you're hitting a once in a few year type event. Um, we just kind of doom scroll, doom scroll, and share various tweets and like news snippets about how terrible everything is. So the last yeah. time this was happening is like when we were sitting at uh, what was it called? Salad, salad creations, uh, soup plantation, soup plantation. Yeah, salad creations is another one. But yeah, um, yeah, we were sitting at soup plantation in uh, uh, in Los Angeles, and you know our phones kept getting these notifications of like, oh man, there's some guy who's diagnosed with COVID somewhere. And mm-hmm. like, you know, futures were indicating that that was going to close like negative 4 million. And, uh, you know, it, so basically it was shit hitting the fan and we're sitting there like dipping our pizza squares in like broccoli cheddar soup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then so I, in I case still you remember- need to know why we enjoy this, this kind of banter. Well, there you go. Oh yeah. We, we flourish in it a little bit. And then my, my favorite thing, I think this is where our enjoyment of like doom scrolling and shit hitting the fan comes, like comes in, but when when after soup plantation we drive to yogurt land and grab like massive cups of just frozen yogurt and then sit in the car and have cbs playing and we're just like eating chocolate yeah, like squawk box 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're just eating chocolate froyo with sprinkles and like the Dow the Dow's down like two thousand points in the past hour and like fucking 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 just eating it. <laughs> it's kind of fun when you're too poor too poor to be effective, right? Yeah, yeah. When you're just like watching it all unfold and you're not like this massive organization or firm that has to deal with it all, and you're just like honestly, I well, think our main concern is yeah. I mean our, our main concern at the time was just are we gonna find a place to sleep before we get back to Kuwait. Yeah. Pretty uh, much. Before we get carried off on that on that topic. Right. Uh, so there was a bit of a calamity over the past few days, you can say. And, and well, in tech as a whole and in the crypto market, so tech as a whole, like you've had the public market corrections playing out over the last couple of weeks, right? Mm-hmm. And then everyone was like, oh, crypto's untouched. But, you know, sooner or later it got touched. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, just to give you an idea of what has transpired recently, so the crypto market absorbed like the collapse of around of, of like this forty billion dollar algorithmic trading um, or algorithmic uh, uh, kind of pseudo stable coin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this thing collapses. It used to be a top ten chain, now no longer, um, and it collapses at at a point where um, we're facing the same harsh economic realities as the rest of the economy. Uh, you know, the deep inflation. Slow down, prospect of multiple rate rises, unknown effects of prolonged war in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, all, all that, all that is happening at the same time that a top ten chain implodes. Right, Luna Foundation, by the way, sold around sixty thousand Bitcoin in a couple of days in an attempt to stabilize the UST, the Terra dollar, yeah. and failed. By the way, and after all of that carnage, and after billions of dollars of liquidations of like multiple exchanges of multiple assets. Um, of, of like, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, a lot of the altcoins. Um, after all of that, you know, the, the, the sell pressure on DEXs, on central central exchanges, Bitcoin's still hovering at around like 30 grand, right? And yeah. there was a little, little bit of a rebound. But again, I want to make it clear that we're not calling the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, so seed stage valuations for a lot of the new L2 crypto plays is still kind of hovering between the 10 and $20 million dollar range. And given everything that has happened, those discussions have not yet stalled, from at least from what I can see with my clients. But I mean, I, I gotta say, and I, I have a feeling I may regret saying this, but crypto winter doesn't seem all that cold now. Yeah. So do you feel like, like this could even... have been way worse? The carnage could have been horrific. Right. Do you think? Do you think the fact that like you know seed stage valuations for all those like L two plays, the fact that they're still around ten to twenty million is 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 still a sign that even in the worst times web three still is still showing it's kind of like promise or the fact that it's like here to stay for a little bit and it's not just all mania or hype well i mean yes part of that and also you know just there's a thing yes a top 10 chain did implode but this is not as bad as having one of the other major dollar stable coins kind of implode mm-hmm um, and and at the same time there was a lot of people kind of calling on algorithmic stable coins as being um, basically, too risky to really call a stablecoin. So for um, because for, they don't have actual reserves, you know. Right, but for zooming out just a little bit for for listeners who don't might not know what an algorithmic stablecoin is or a stablecoin, and by listeners I mean okay. me. Can you can you define that? <laughs> <laughs> listeners include you, Ma, Dad. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes Maya when we play for. Right, as long as she spoke English. Um, 
She's so her cat, by the a way. A stable coin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, she's family. So a stable coin <laughs> is basically um, all right. So most like you know, crypto native assets, say Bitcoin, for example, like you know, there's a lot of volatility in prices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can definitely you know pay and receive payments in Bitcoin, but you have to understand you're taking on a lot of basically FX risk when you do that. So it could appreciate, could depreciate, and can do either one of those things fairly violently in a relatively short period of time compared to any other currency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, hold on a second. <coughs> Excuse me. Bless you. So um, um, yeah, so thank you. And uh, a stable coin basically gives you all the benefits of the crypto native kind of payment infrastructure and network mm-hmm. um it helps you avoid all the mess of the banking system especially with like things like cross-border payments and like speed of payments and having to worry about letters of credit and that kind of a thing um stablecoin basically gives you access to all of that while having the relative stability of the us dollar interesting um, okay and there's multiple different forms of stablecoins so some of the largest stablecoins by the way are things like usdc and usdt um, USDC is pretty much the gold standard of the stable coins, right? And it's present on multiple different chains. Um, so USDC or US dollar coin is um, run by an entity called Circle, which is affiliated with Coinbase. And their holdings are, are audited. So we know that every dollars, every dollar coin that they issue is backed by a dollar um, okay. or other so similar reserve assets, similar to like a treasury or something. Right. Um, a highly liquid financial asset with a relatively low risk, which typically means entirely treasuries. Mm-hmm. Um, there's USDT or Tether. Um, Tether claims that they are, in fact, uh, entirely backed by the dollar uh, or dollar uh, holdings um, like treasuries. But Tether got into trouble with the New York State financial um, regulator uh, because New York State could never really verify that they were holding that. Now, the thing with Tether is they claim to have, there's about $80 billion in Tether in terms of the market cap. That mm-hmm. means they have $80 billion in assets locked up somewhere, supposedly, um, that, well, I mean, nobody's ever seen. So the thing is that they're not a U.S. domiciled entity, uh, Tether. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're a, I think it's so the U.S. has jurisdiction to force them to show what they have. Um so I have heard from various people in crypto that they have a friend who works at Tether and then they definitely have everything. At one point, an audit was going to go through similar to like the, the monthly audits that USDC goes through mm-hmm. at Circle, but uh, that audit never ended up happening and nobody really knows why. Um, people are generally, su- generally suspicious of their ability to kind of print new USDT whenever they want. Or, you know, basically in a way that kind of calls into question whether or not they actually have things uh, properly uh, collateralized. So USDC, USDT are kind of up there in terms of the stable coins that are either known to be or claimed to be entirely backed by dollars and, and dollar uh, assets off chain. Um, that that is the heart of you know functional stable coins. And then you have um, basically um, collateralized stable coins that are collateralized with things that are besides the dollar or dollar denominated debt, and typically collateralized with um, crypto assets. So the best example of that, I think, would be something like DAI, D-A-I. Mm-hmm. So DAI is the stable coin that you get from a lending protocol called MakerDAO. Okay. Um, so basically, when you when you receive cash in, in exchange for uh, crypto collateral like ETH, um, you receive DAI. And do, DAI is pegged to the dollar, and you use that to pay back your loan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that you can then get your ETH back or whatever. 
or whatever you locked up. So um, that's so the collateralization ratio is around 150, which basically means that for $150 worth of Ethereum, they will give you $100 worth of die. Interesting. That extra 50 kind of gives them the ability to do what's called open market operations. So it's currency that allows them to, you know, um, buy excess die out on the open market to keep things pegged to a dollar in case it falls below peg. Uh, and so at is the that same like, time, um, can, is that yeah. is that kind of like the Web three equivalent of like quantitative easing? Not really, because quantitative easing is just buying assets at random to 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 maximize um, you know money supply. Um, this is kind of, if you want to look at a real, real world example, think of it as like an emerging market um, currency, right? Or, um, or, or think of it this way. So say uh, the, the Saudi real, okay? Uh, the Saudi real is pegged to, I think it's about 3.75 real per US dollar. Interesting. Um, okay. So Saudi sells, you know, enor enormous quantities of oil around the world and does it in US dollars. And that builds their U.S. dollar reserve at their central bank. Um, and then uh, uh, basically, if they want to issue new domestic reals in the country, they do it by backing it by, to, by the U.S. dollar. Right. So for every 3.75 reals issued, there's a dollar uh, in reserve. Mm -hmm. This means if the, if, the, if the free market value, the fair market value of the real begins to dip, they can then use the dollar reserves to start go buying up reals. And reducing the quantity of real in the market, and therefore uh, keeping the price propped up. If the demand for real exceeds the uh, uh, domestic supply, that means the real may end up breaking peg um, to the upside, so it ends up becoming more expensive than three point seven five to the dollar. Mm -hmm. um, and then they can just basically uh, buy up dollars in the local banking system, inject real, and then bring the price back down to three point seven five the peg. And, so, and the whole notion of of something breaking the peg, like that's th that's what's common between what would happen with like the the reals example that you mentioned, as well as what happened with like that that stablecoin collapse, right? Um, yeah, and by the way, there have been um, kind of emerging market um, currencies that have collapsed because they could no longer support the peg. Now, um, a good example of that is like Mexico in the mid nineties. So the central bank basically one day came out and said, yo, we, we don't even have any more reserves with which to keep buying pesos to prop up the price. And it just fell off a cliff. Um, Interesting. And by the way, there, there's like thousands of examples of emerging market um, um, like currencies kind of losing their peg or losing their back because they run out of reserves with which to buy. Um, right. So, you know, this is, this is where... Um, Okay, so now we've gone over two different kinds of, of uh, stablecoin, right? They have algorithmic stablecoins and balance sheet stablecoins. So the balance sheet stablecoins we've gone we've gone through, they, they have to be directly backed by something, right? An algorithmic stablecoin is a little different because an algorithmic stablecoin basically says we're going to create a coin that remains stably pegged to the uh, pegged to the dollar, but there's not going to be a dollar in reserve for each one. So that means they can have assets, things like Bitcoin. Um, which is what the Luna Foundation did. They bought quite a lot of Bitcoin over the last few weeks um, as reserves so that in case the price of the, the Terra dollar falls, they can then use Bitcoin to buy it up and keep up the price. Um, mm -hmm. That's what the Luna Foundation would do. And then, okay, so here's the thing. With, with an algorithmic stablecoin, it's easy to stabilize it when it starts getting too valuable because then you just issue more, right? The mm -hmm. difficult thing is what do you do when it starts falling? 
right? So when, oh, yeah. when it starts falling, you you need to you need to buy up enough of it for the for the um, uh, supply to shrink and value to go up, assuming demand stays the same, right? Right. Um, now, if you don't have reserves, you can't do that, and it goes into like a collapse freefall. And that's and that's kind to, of what that's kind of what yeah. like a flash crash would be like, right? When you know, basically not. An, an algorithm that's kind of like designed to keep something a little stable notices that yeah. it's the thing it's supposed to be keeping stable heads off in the wrong direction and just doesn't have the resources to actually fix it. So it just like yeah. amplifies that direction. But the, the so a flash crash can happen when a bunch of like um, um, you know automated traders end up uh, dumping the same asset at the same time faster than the central bank or whoever's maintaining the peg can perform what's called open market operations to keep it propped up to the peg. Right. Um, so, so that's just generally the mechanics of a peg and it's based on real world mechanics of a lot of emerging market, um, economies. Um, yeah. So with, with Terra, um, the Terra dollar, by the way, um, when they want to buy more Terra dollars to keep it propped up to the dollar, what they do is they issue more Luna. Mm -hmm. Um, they issue more Luna to then go buy up Terra. And Luna was seeing as sort of a counterbalance of the peg. Okay. And then if they wanted, again, to, to, to bring the price of Terra down, they just issue more, right? Now, this is based on how the asset re reacts to supply and demand in a market. But there are certain situations that can kind of artificially push the value of the coin, sometimes outside of the peg range. But if the market continues to function normally, it comes back to that range. Otherwise, there's like a cascading effect where everybody dumps it because it's no longer pegged. Um, now, when you're doing that with a properly backed uh, uh, stable coin, it's less of an issue because everyone understands that the, the reserve asset being used to buy up the excess to prop up the peg is something of value. Here, the Luna is not that. And so people just kind of lost faith in the entire thing. Um, so that's what happens when it's consumer behavior or investor behavior that causes a peg to break. Um, other situations where a peg can break is just the liquidity and demand for each one of the stable dollars. So consider this, say Curve Finance, which used to be, I mean, Curve Finance used to be almost entirely about um, swapping stable coins, right? Because mm -hmm. um, you'd need USDC or USDT or USDC.ed or, you know, there's all, all kinds of different points. Um, with, I mean, Curve now has everything, but I'm talking about the early days. So suppose there's a Curve liquidity pool with like USDC and USDT, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have uh, 100 USDC, you want to trade it for USDT. Now, I mean, it, comes, it stands to reason that it should be 100 is 100, right? Yeah. But suppose there's excess uh, supply of USDC and then there's a little shortage of the supply of USDT. What ends up happening is like for 100 USDC, you end up getting 99 Terra or sorry, 99 USDT. Now that's a problem because it basically means the peg has been broken. And that and situation, that's, yeah. Yeah, like that's that's the red flag that causes investors and like anyone holding this to collectively just dump it because it's no longer stable well yes but if in in that scenario where usdc is a little uh, more valuable than usdt then usdt can just use i mean tether the foundation can use some other assets to buy up excess 
USDT, and it comes back to a dollar. Now, if you look at any one of those coins on any day, and if you look at the movement on the exchange, they can blip up and down to the third, fourth, fifth decimal after, uh, you know, third, fourth, fifth digit after the decimal. And that's normal. That's kind of like normal volatility. If there's a really extreme vol volatile day, just like um, after the Terra collapse, USDT went down to like 98 cents, but snapped back. Interesting. So um, the problem is, what if your reserve is something that doesn't have any value in of itself and people lose, lose faith in it, like Luna? Yeah. Which is why I have what would have been $350 million worth of Luna in my, in my account. Yes. Which hopefully, you know, I, I, I'm definitely going to butcher his name, but Duke Kwan, the, yeah. the, the guy who's in charge of this all, basically. Um, I checked out that he recently announced like a recovery plan. So hopefully that's going to up the price just a little bit, not to yeah. you having 350 million, but you know, a reasonable amount of wealth, right? Yeah. I'm going to stop doing this fucking podcast for $350 million. But, um. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the whole plan. Just get rich off of crypto and then uh, stop yeah. doing this. Um, but another thing to note is they issued so much Luna trying to buy up the Terra being dumped that the float is now like in the trillions. There's trillions of, of coins now. Yeah. So the market cap of Luna went from around uh, 30 billion to something like, uh, I think now it's around uh, two and a half billion. Wow. Yeah. Despite they're having issued a zillion coins, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, here, here's the interesting thing. Like when I, when I hear about all this and even when I read it on my timeline, my, my first thing is like, okay, you know, Crypto and Web3, since the beginning of the pandemic, has been in a mania. It seems like stuff has begun to reset or crash or just normalize itself a little bit. But there's got to be some lessons learned, right? Mm -hmm. with, with this crash specifically, what do you think is going to be a proper reaction to it? Or, or what should people in the Web3 space kind of learn from that? Well, what will they learn from this crash? I think yeah. for starters, like... If regulation really comes to crypto, it's going to start with stable coins. Mm -hmm. I think they may require any stable coin issuer to actually have to prove their reserves in a way similar to USDC. Right. Um, I can I can totally foresee that happening. Um, so CZ actually had a post about this today, and he tweeted it out, basically saying, you know, the way to go for stable coins is to use a fully backed coin, and that's similar to BUSD, by the way, uh, Bitcoin mm -hmm. dollar. Yeah. Um, which has you know verifiable reserves and that sort of a thing. So the thing is, right. if every coin you have in your wallet is redeemable for exactly one US dollar that you know exists in an account, mm -hmm. you're not going to panic sell the coin because it's a dollar. True. And you know, it's you know? it's it, even if it does decrease in value, it's going to snap back to its original dollar, basically. Yeah, and that's fairly momentary. You know, like th those kind of arbitrage opportunities don't exist for long because the second it falls to 98 cents everyone is going to start buying it mm -hmm. uh, to get it back to a dollar and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah it's like demand shot up suddenly and therefore it went back to a dollar and if it goes north of a dollar people are like oh we well, you know we bought way too fast and didn't dump it and as it falls back down to a dollar so it, yeah. it, there's a really a lot of like investor psychology that goes into this interesting yeah, Richard Richard Schiller, I think, is is the the guy's name, but he does a lot of talking about Robert. this type of stuff. Robert Schiller, yeah. Um, yeah. Robert Schiller, and then there was one guy who was in the Big Short, who's known as like the father of behavioral economics. 
um, of just talking about yeah, the, the psychology behind all this stuff and like price increases and decreases. And yeah. I think I, I haven't seen an equivalent of that analysis in the Web3 industry, but or like with crypto markets, but I think it would be really, really cool just seeing some parallels on that end. You know, crypto is, it's unregulated finance right now. Pretty much. It's uh, all these things you can do in finance, everything from like issuing equity to getting loans to, uh, you know, making non-financial assets bankable. by which I mean, if, if you have something of value, that's not something you can deposit, deposit in a bank, you can suddenly do that with crypto because of like tokenized um, holdings. Um, mm. it, it, it's none of it is regulated, mainly because the people who would draw up the regulations about this sort of a thing still don't believe the internet is real. But Well, that, that's actually an interesting point because that's what I brought up with our conversation with Aiden Gold last week, where I said, mm-hmm. you know, Investors and engineers and like entrepreneurs basically throw themselves in industries surrounding new technology, but they like time and time again, people just don't see that the people writing the laws and writing the rules about this type of stuff, like still don't know how to change the wallpaper on their phones or something like that. You know, like it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. The difference in tech literacy between those two like groups, but what's also sadder is that, or no, what's what's it's actually a little bit more optimistic, actually. But you know, we mentioned it a really long time ago in one of our very first episodes that um, Coinbase is actually working on. Um, you know, they're they're calling for the creation of a regulatory body aside from the SEC for crypto markets, and I don't think anything ever came out of that. But that would have been an awesome initiative that would have well, addressed it's not, a lot of it's issues. Not, uh, totally accurate because what did happen is that the FBI basically created a crypto enforcement wing. Interesting. And do, um, do they serve as the crypto market SEC esque? Uh, no, because the law prohibits them from doing that. An investigative body like the DOJ cannot serve as a, uh, a regulator. Um, but what's going to happen, I mean, again, they cannot issue regulation as because, again, American law prohibits it as, as the FBI. Um, so the FBI can 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 investigate like malfeasance with uh, around securities laws, but they can't issue a securities regulation. But what happens is when they start investigating certain things and uh, that basically signifies I mean, signals to the market that certain practices are problematic mm-hmm. and therefore people avoid it. Yeah. Um, so if I'm going to say, this is a huge if, like, okay, let's not mention names get in trouble, but suppose, you know, FBI's new crypto enforcement wing decides to look into the business model of a particular, say, crypto lender, right? Mm-hmm. Like crypto back lending. Um, if they start saying like, oh, this, that, and the other thing kind of violates certain laws and we can't allow it, and this can't happen. What's going to happen is funding for similar ideas or competitive ideas are going to dry up. Um, and founders are going to spend a lot more time looking at potential enforcement issues and compliance issues. Um, right. So in a way, this may be the first kind of federal attempt at, at, at creating a crypto regulatory body. Um, but there, there's still so much more um, to be done. So Coinbase trying to get regulators to look at it because ultimately regulation serves their best interest because all the people on the fence because of a lack of regulatory clarity, will jump in once there is regulatory clarity. The best example of that, by the right. way, is the Emirates. So oh, as right. soon as the Emirates like totally legalized everything and introduced a regulatory framework, it, it wasn't scary to anybody anymore. 
it was, you know, the government has put their, their stamp on this. It's legitimate. Yeah. They like it. It's legal. Um, and it doesn't scare anyone off anymore. And it's making a lot of um, like new funds and new startups basically pop up there, which is, you know, going to do wonders for the economy in the long term. Yeah. So this is what the U.S. is lacking right now. Um, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's looking to what prosecutors say about the market, not regulators. That's not yeah. really a way to lead regulatory change. I mean, the the one good thing about it all is that it's it's, you know, the the Web three wave or the cycle is is a little bit different. The sense that people are being aware of the regulations and and the existing laws that they need to comply with. I mean, yeah. The the good thing about it is like we haven't seen you know when AI came back from its winter and started and like these deep tech startups started popping up. It was very rare to see massive AI players or even in like funds that invest in AI build like policy centers for advocating and analyzing the existing laws and, you know, pushing for new ones that are a bit more friendly for that industry and all that type of stuff. But that's basically what A16C and Coinbase are doing right now Um, with all the initiatives that they have going on. I think the, like putting the founder hat on a little bit, what actually came up with is, is it's, that would actually make a great startup in the Web3 industry that does, isn't really attached to crypto or the blockchain. Just compliance, you know, compliance. There, there is so and... much to be done in Web3 compliance. Yeah. Um, for starters, like Web3 tax software for people who have absolutely no idea how to report like an LP token earnings, right. what they earned on Harvest, and whether or not they can write off their, their you know, their gas fees. It's just, it's still just such a, um, you know, yeah, like Like I think regulatory clarity in any industry is the last thing that comes. You know, it, it, first it's the tech, and then it's the VC attention. Then with the tech and the VC attention, you get hyper growth that gives you all sorts of flaws and crashes, and you know, and 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 ways to reset the or or, or normalize the mania. And then comes the regulatory clarity, and I think we've seen this with multiple different industries and multiple like waves of new tech that has come in and out. Yeah. And what's very, that's weird... not just tech, by the way. Oh, interesting. What, what, what other industries did you like see this in? Well, I mean, you know, UFC, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ultimate fighting championship. So UFC, the reason like the founders own so much of it was because nobody wanted to touch it at first. It was basically seen as like modern gladiating. I'm like, wait, so you're going to get these two dudes like with like no gloves kicking the shit out of each other, almost committing murder on video. Um, And basically, you know, it was just seen as so risky that nobody wanted to touch it. So the recorded content, no production company wanted to have anything to do with it because they thought it was just like a snuff film. Um, Interesting. And and in terms of like live entertainment, well, today they have shows everywhere, including the UAE, like, you know, UFC... Was in Fight Island, I, think. Uh, I forgot, but it was in Abu Dhabi. And, and um, the, the thing is, now it's sort of an accepted sport um, and yeah. legitimized sport and legal by most gaming commissions. At the time, um, I recall the founder saying that, uh, or Dana White saying, like, you know, we went literally everywhere in the country and nobody wanted to have us because mm-hmm. they just saw it as murder. Um, 
and uh, uh, at, at the end of the day, there was literally only one county uh, and one state gaming commission that would give them the license to do it. And even then, there was a lot of caveats. Uh, by the way, guess who? Who? Vegas. Oh, oh, right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Vegas was pretty much the only city willing to license it. Um, so by the time like UFC was live, the founders of UFC owned pretty much anything and everything to do with it. Interesting. Um, and this is before a lot of the rules came into effect. But, you know, Royce Gracie used to fight McGee. Um, uh-huh. This was before, like, the red uh, the red uh, uh, ground, the lights. You know, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? I think I, I have vague recollection of it, but yeah. Okay, so, like, in, in the 70s, like, in the, in the 70s when MASH was still on TV, there uh-huh. were some scenes that had to be aired in black and white because they're considered too bloody for, like, daytime TV. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, with UFC, by the way, since, you know, it's it's not scripted and sometimes the guys bleed everywhere. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I can't remember whether it was insurance or whether it was a regulator or the network, but someone requested that the ground has to light up red um, if it gets too bloody, just so that we don't have so much obvious blood on broadcast. Oh, so people kind of mistake it for like sweat, maybe. Uh, so it just looks like a red ground, right? It's just maybe some wet <laughs> spots. So interesting. Yeah, it, it was. So th- this is what happens in the early days of any industry. And now, like, there's like 500 UFC copycats, right? So, yeah. And and it's the same thing in crypto, really. Like in spirit, w- what's happening? Like we're, we're kind of inventing things as we go along. Uh, a lot of the paradigms that exist in a lot of other industries simply don't here, and we kind of have to do our best to to, to create something similar. And of course, we're going to own it outright because nobody wants to work with us because they're not sure if it's legal, um, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. So, yeah, yeah crypto is just the latest, you know, the latest in all this. But, you know, market carnage has not been restricted to crypto because if you've been in public in public equities, you've pretty much eaten it as well. Um, I wish I had a list here, but everything seems to be down between 50 and 90 percent. And yeah. all the household names are eating it. Um I think you know Apple is doing phenomenally well by being down only twenty percent year to date. Yeah, but yeah, what, what's uh, I, I think finally things are beginning to trickle into the private market. So what have, what have you seen there? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, from from the there's definitely been a lot of perspectives, and we, we just dove into the crypto one, touched briefly on the like kind of like the economic slash VC view of it by seeing, you know, public companies not performing as well or di- taking dives when everything internally seems to be going well but the you know putting on the founder hat for a little bit um i've definitely noticed changes in mentality on a day-to-day basis of you know typical aspects or talking points that you would talk to a founder about in a startup like your runway how how much are you burning like what's your burn every month and and how is that affecting you know when you're planning on fundraising next or doing all that type of stuff um the main thing, you know, with this, the main thing I've kind of noticed with this, like discussions or, or just chats I've had with different founders here is they're mainly trying to see whether they can survive this winter. So kind of, you know, speaking from an early stage perspective, which is where we're at, I mean, they know that money, if it, you know, if not from revenue will be very hard to come by while all, while all of this is going on. So the main goal that everyone kind of has on their mind is trying to extend runway as much as possible. And 
what was very interesting was basically seeing the different reactions that founders have had in trying to extend runway as much as possible. I mean, you know, I can dive into a couple that I've kind of listed in my notes, but the what was very, very interesting was that the majority case, I want to say about 90% of the reactions that founders have had, and I'm sure you could say this too for any companies that you might be interacting with or seeing has been um, layoffs. So, you know, for most software-based startups, whether you're in Web 2 or Web 3, hiring in this market has been really hot. It's like demand for engineers has skyrocketed. Startups have adjusted for this high demand for engineers and the low supply of them by offering ridiculous salaries for like entry-level people. And like uh, while the engineering department's kind of happy because they have a 10Xer on their team, the rest of the business is kind of worried about needing to pay out 300K for salaries for a single engineer who's just going to be building this one thing, this one aspect of their product. So, you know, looking at it from a company's perspective, it makes sense to kind of take the hit of slower development if that means that they can be around a little longer, you know. Not having that 10xer on your team is not going to be the worst thing you can ever have. But if that means you can survive past the winner in order to raise again and then get that 10xer, get a team of 10xers, you know, that's that's kind of like the way the way founders around here are kind of seeing it. Of we have a lot of very, very necessary people, but we just need to, you know, hunker down and like survive this. Um another a little bit more of an extreme reaction that I've seen quite a bit of is you know, not even trying to lay off people, but just completely shutter your business, probably because of a major potential source of revenue being cut. Um, like if you're selling, if you if your main market was selling to other startups that are now also shuttering themselves, um, bad timing with fundraising. If you're if if you know a couple of years ago you you raised a specific amount of money in a round that you were expecting to finish sometime now. Um, you know that you're running out of runway and then you're not going to be able to raise anytime soon, especially if your metrics are not good. So that's just like, you know, bad, wrong place, wrong time. Um, or great how timing. many of those conversations coming about from the founders saying, Hey, we've had a good run and it's time to hang it up. And how many of them are basically the board basically, you know, just get in front of the founder and, and giving them a dressing down saying, Hey guys, you know, you've burned too much money and things are not going to turn around. So maybe start, polishing up your resumes. Yeah. I mean, a, a founder will, will honestly like get rid of their salary and, and move back in with their parents. If it means that their startup can still be around, like there's, there's definitely that yeah. whole aspect of like, I am attached to this because I poured my heart and soul into it for the past couple of years. Most of the times it does come from like the board or advisors who've basically seen this before and have been like, you, you know, you poured your heart and soul into it, but it's time to move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, also, also, you know, this is a, a, the point in time where you are turning to the investor of last resort, which is typically the people right. already on your cap table. And it's very hard yeah. to sell them on something to, 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 you know, get some more money out of them. Right. Uh, given that you've had trouble raising elsewhere. So they have to see some really exceptional promise in you, a real probability of returning capital for them to actually part with their money. And the worse the economy gets, the less likely that is. Um, that exactly. That that's way. that's one thing that's actually exciting of like going back and looking at pitch decks from you know 2008 2020 and just the, mm-hmm. seeing how much of an improvement pitch decks had or experience with storytelling um just saying like you know painting the whole genesis of that company and then the direction that they're headed in 
you know, normally when I see pitch decks from like different times or different eras, like it's, it's okay. Like we built this thing, we're heading in this direction, but yeah. with 2008, like you really need to convince people to let go of their money and to invest in your company. So, you know, the, it, it turns into a pretty much like a trailer for a movie. Like that's, that's how they come off as every now and then. So, um, yeah, I think it's like, you almost have to pass a VC and note saying we have that video that you thought you got rid of in college. And then they give you like a term sheet. <laughs> Pretty much, pretty much. I wonder if that's someone actually. That's how someone actually raised. Probably not. I hope not. Um, uh, but, there's uh, probably blackmail somewhere. Yeah. Here's the thing: be. you're starting to get VCs whose life was documented on Facebook, and they didn't really spend a decent amount of time cleaning up their history. So yeah. Maybe. You know. <laughs> Think about it. You know, I don't have five seed round. Yeah. <laughs> because. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, for, for a lot of the time, it's basically been just like, you know, going back to the original point, just like bad timing with fundraising, not being able to fundraise in a market like this because VCs are just paying attention to their port codes and they're not really looking for more deal flow or looking for more, you know, companies to invest in. Um, or another reason, uh, great timing if you were planning on shuttering your business anyway, because, you know, yeah. might as well. Um, so the the one very interesting thing is I found one example that I think you and I both know a few startups that that have done, um, which is deciding to pivot. So yeah, you and I both know a few startups that responded this way last time the market shit the bed. Um, you know, pivoting from from like enterprise to consumers or consumers to yeah. businesses that are a bit more stable or changing their product completely to serve a new market that was not as affected by the market by like the crash as the ones they were currently in. Um, well, that's this great one, pivot cycle is, uh, you know, the, the immediate uh, aftermath of COVID. Yeah. The, the immediate aftermath of COVID saw people like repurpose entire teams internally and just go like, wow, like this is, it, it's actually pretty surprising just seeing how much pe- like how much leadership was able to steer ships of differing sizes as a response to COVID. I mean, I think I think the the biggest example was like basically the 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 ride sharing giants, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Lyft Lyft didn't didn't have that big of a reaction to to everything that was going on, but like Uber, Uber tried to buy what was it Grubhub, and they ended up buying I think DoorDash, and they oh no sorry Postmates, um, yep, yeah. and they pivoted into into Uber Eats because you know people being at home meant people are going to be ordering a lot and that's what they decided to invest a lot of their money in shutting down a lot of their ATG and like their R&D developments and groups. Um, and even on the, on the startup basis, it's like you have this team that you hired to build this one specific product, but now you come in one day and it's like, well, uh, every single customer we're talking to is now going into de- like damage control. So what's the plan? So you, you, you need to figure out a way to kind of repurpose your team and you know, get ideas from them, get ideas on you know modifying your existing offerings or completely rebuilding them in order to make the startup live. Yeah. And we've seen a couple of examples here and there. You know, there, there's there's a lot that we can dive into on that end. But yeah. zooming out a little bit, I mean, there's laying off people, there's shuttering your business, and there's pivoting. You know, those are the three main reactions that I've kind of seen. In whenever the markets kind of shit the bed, and 
you know, the most exciting ones out there are pivoting because you get to keep your team and whatever culture you have, that must be amazing. And when you pivot, you still, you know, you get that necessity of needing to survive, you build, right. And then you, you know, if it goes well, you end up hitting PMF for you, you pretty much, you know, keep your business around for as long as possible. And, and you don't shrink your team yeah. because you hired all those people for a reason. Um, but yeah, so, so those are like kind of the three main, main reactions. And before I kind of head back into like, you know, there's very little that I can do in a recommendation. So like quick, quick disclaimer, I'm, I'm definitely not in kind of a position to tell founders what to do as our company, like my company abstract is still very early stage and needs to do all this stuff ourselves. Um, and, you know, kind of looking at metrics, looking at how much runway we have and when we need to raise and, you know, so on and so forth, just typical founder stuff. But what I can talk about is just what I would do if I was a CEO in that, in that similar position. Um, first of all, you know, it's very easy. Like there, there, there's a founder equivalent of paper handing and that's just being very emotional with a lot of the decisions that you make, you know? So, so pretty much like a pilot flying through fog, trust your instrumentation. Don't go by your gut and just check your metrics, see how you're doing. You know, the, the markets don't affect well-built products on track to make a ton of revenue. They Have also been flying flights in. No, I've been watching a lot of flights and videos on YouTube. <laughs> okay, I got, I'm going to get you uh, an Oculus headset and okay. start flight simming. Go on. I love that. I, I look forward to it. But, um, you know, yeah, the, the, the markets don't really affect well-built products on track to make a ton of revenue, right? They also don't really affect an awesome team and culture that you've built that can like tackle anything that's thrown right. its way. So if you have an awesome team, you have a reasonable runway, i.e. like what, eight, eight to 12 months and have a team that can continue building through the storm, just put your head down and keep doing what you do. You're, you're on track to grow. You're on track to do really well. There's no reason or no need to get emotional about what's going on with market crashing and changing yeah. everything within your company. That's kind of way, like, this is, um, I wanted to uh, say, this is partly why like, you know, seed and pre-seed um, is not as wrecked as some of the, like the growth stage businesses. So right. the closer you are to being growth stage and the deeper you are in growth stage, then the more you are affected by the general macroeconomic conditions of the next six to 12 months, because that's yeah. when everything is revenue, 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 right? Right. Um, for, for seed and pre-seed that early on, um, you're kind of, you're building to optimize for growth and uh, VCs are going to focus a little more time on what your burn is and less so on revenue. So a okay. seed business being built today, funded today, mm -hmm. is hoping to succeed at some point in the next, like, you know, best case scenario, three, typically five, sometimes seven years. Right. Um, well, a lot of times, not sometimes, but, you know, that, that's the timeline you're really looking at. So to say, oh, this business is, is not worthy of capital today is basically saying, like, I don't know what this founder's chances are in 2020 six mm -hmm. right it's just a yeah. crazy argument because nobody knows what's going to happen that far out but can they spend time um in a down market building you know kind of the uh building escape velocity to be relevant in a few years time right. so when you're putting money in a series c startup it's because you need them to accelerate revenue growth over the next 12 months to further boost valuation right if the macro economy sucks then their revenue growth prospects typically suck it's just mm -hmm. different mechanics when you're looking very early true and, and I think 
you know, the, the interesting thing about it is like, especially at the early stage that, you know, obviously there's, there's more risk involved, but it's yeah. there, there's more room to make error, but there's also more room to make really, really good decisions that set you on the right track. I mean, if, if you're a, if you're a series like A, B or C company, where you're basically very obsessed with growth and revenue, um, most of the times like one small slip up from an executive team or like leadership or anything can result in that revenue like crashing or anything where they don't really it becomes too big a ship to steer in in, in another direction but yeah. with early stage startups like you can completely just you know if you mess up on one once like source of revenue or one thing like that there's there's room to recover and you have the speed and the the you know you're you're light-footed enough to actually recover um yeah. But but I think you know that there's this one interesting thing of just talking about the point of putting your head down and doing what you do. Um, I was having this discussion with with like an investor uh, who's who's like yeah pretty pretty big in the LA area. But um, I was talking to him about startups and especially what's what's been going on with them with everything that's going on in the market. And the one thing that he said was um, the majority of startups that I've seen. Uh, have died by suicide and not by homicide right so like the it, it's all just unnecessary reactions to the fact that there is new competition or there is new like th- directions that the company needs to head in but it's yeah. never oh a competitor actually popped up built something that's orders of magnitude better than what you have and mm-hmm. just actually ended up kill, like killing your company that rarely happens um, yeah. but I mean, yeah, I mean, as a founder, you do definitely need to be like stoic about it and, and just, you know, keep emotions aside, look at the metrics to trust your instrumentation. Um, speaking on the flight sim, uh, thing, but, um, like the IFR, not VFR, but in the fog. Yeah. Yeah. Trust exactly. your ILS. <laughs> trust the glide slope that your instrumentation is showing. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, the, like there, there will be a factor in your metrics that'll let you decide what the best course of action is. So, so like what I'm about to say might be a little weird, but whatever it is to pivot your business, it isn't really going to require you to think outside the box. I mean, it's going to be obvious. The hole in your ship is going to be very, very obvious. You just need to put together the best solution to plug it. And that's not really strategizing or or you know thinking of brand new ways of doing stuff but it's just trade-offs you have something in your company that currently works just what are you willing to accelerate at the expense of what else that's going on with your company um but yeah i mean i yeah i i think this a is, lot of uh, this is the, the the wartime versus peacetime ceo uh philosophy that ben horowitz wrote about in the hard thing about hard things have you yeah. read that book? It's it's on my list. I have not gotten to it yet, though. It, it's it, it is really good, but I mean, I'm going to really really boil it down. So basically, the peacetime CEO is interested in in kind of empowering people to make their own decisions, allowing for um, kind of you know autonomy of units um, and, and and you know functioning in that way to to maximize efficiency of, of a corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the wartime CEO is basically when CEO becomes dictator, and the point is not to work with everyone to build consensus. Work to everyone's strengths, but rather to dictate um, what everyone needs to be doing in a particular time to best position the company to survive, um, like a sort of an imminent threat. Um, yeah, 
And you can really take Ben Horowitz's word for it because I don't want to ruin the book, but the guy has been in so many situations where it really looked like, you know, one misstep. But look, I'll use this analogy. Ben Horowitz's startup career um, is basically the equivalent of somebody running blindfolded through a minefield for like a mile and not stepping on a mine. Jesus, really? I mean, that, that, okay, that, that kind of paints the picture that he got lucky. That's not my point at all. Yeah, he was yeah. Ri- ridiculously skilled, but the fact that he pulled it off is amazing. Interesting. I mean, I kind of, I kind of see the the points that he make that he's making though about peacetime versus wartime CEOs and like leadership, basically, because that 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 like that concept can kind of be blown up on much grander scale. You know, like think of peacetime and wartime between actual countries, right? Like you you, you can go, you know, in in peacetime, it's just like whatever corporations are doing what they need to do to generate their revenue yeah. governments just being there regulating a couple of things but that's pretty much it but once you turn into wartime like you can use the I forgot the name of the thing it was this act the the emergency authorization act i think or something like that but it's it's the one where like you start you know the government basically has a say in what each corporation produces and like it, it was recently enacted during covid oh, the, the defense production act Defense Production Act. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. When when yeah. you basically go like, okay, uh, f- f- like freaking Raytheon, cool. Stop building missiles. We yeah. need face masks. Build some PPE, please. And yeah, yeah. But this is um, yeah, there's definitely some analogies in government that are um, you know, historically definitely there's there's definitely um, that's what I'm looking for precedent. Yeah. Um, but this is really built on, say, like in the, in the Bush era, for example, there were a lot of like DOJ opinions. And some of these are appalling, but this is true. A lot of DOJ opinions that the Constitution allows for something called a unitary uh, executive, which okay. sounds antithetical to the Constitution, which because I think it is, but I'm not a constitutional scholar, but in my opinion. Um, right. But basically what it means is that, you know, in times of exceptional difficulty and hardship to the country similar to war or directly in the aftermath of a terrorist attack like 2001 2002 Mm -hmm. um, the president can basically act without really needing to consult congress on much of anything oh interesting so i mean this is this is based on the legal opinions of certain lawyers in the bush circle at the time and while we find it appalling for government, almost everyone seems to be in kind of unanimous um, uh, agreement that this is definitely the way to go for private corporation when you're dealing with something as, uh, say, systemically destabilizing and as existentially threatening to the business. Right. Um, basically, you have one person at the top and to hell with everyone's opinions. We need to do what they say. Yeah. I mean, I think it it just it it decreases the noise that normally happens. So there's like a productive, creative noise that happens in any company going on, where you basically go like, "Oh yeah, we have like all this," and you know, we're trying to like brainstorm what the plan is for the next couple of years and all that. But once it's a life or death situation, I think then it becomes okay. We need one person to tell us what to do. (laughs) So it's like. That that's yeah. when you know CEO steps in or like any sort of leadership and goes, okay, here's the plan, just let's execute on it. Um, but yeah, I feel like that that, that might right be now, like right now. I'm just waiting for Doak One to assume the role of wartime CEO and do something to save Luna. 
Yes. So you can have your 350 million back that, that you have the right to basically. Yeah. Along the lines. But until then, yeah. <laughs> until then, there's some kebab waiting for me. So I got to run. It is turkey after all. Oh, yeah. Likewise, I got work migrations. Boring. Very. <laughs> Peace. All right. <laughs>